0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran, and this is the 10x9 Podcast. It was Wednesday, September 27th, and there was music in the air at Belfast Black Box for our monthly 10x9. And the theme was, appropriately, music and what a night we had.
1: I pulled myself off the floor, peeked out the side of the toilet door and shouted at the next guest walking past to go and get my mommy.
2: No matter what age you are and you're sick, you just want your mommy. In all that time, I never got to see them live. That was the dream. Well, actually the whole dream was that Suggs was gonna leave his wife, marry me, and come to live in Urie. I walked into the
3: tea time sound check and stared at the largest union jack I have ever seen. <laughs> Hung across the organ pipes behind the stage in the Ulster Hall, and I thought, well, Dave, this is a first.
0: Oh, what a night indeed. First dance nightmares, a hint of madness in Yuri, and an orange order sting along. It really was something else. So, let's get stuck in. And our first story, appropriately, comes from a first-timer. Here's Marie O'Hara. Okay.
1: I met my Prince Charming on the 25th of March 2018. It was a Sunday afternoon, Cuba to revolution, Belfast. We were introduced to each other via the good old-fashioned world of Tinder. A few weeks of messaging, and we took the leap to meet up. We headed off and talked in the bar until closing time, completely ignoring the fact that we both had to get up for nine o'clock the next day. We had lots in common. We enjoyed doing the same things, on the weekends, going out exploring. Each week, a different National Trust venue. Going on holidays, taking it easy. We were boyfriend and girlfriend for a few years. I turned 34. I wasn't getting any younger. As I watched all my friends getting engaged and getting married, I started thinking to myself, was this, ever, is this guy ever going to put a ring on it or what? <laughs> then on my birthday, on the 18th of September, 2021, in the beautiful little town of Lussell, Scotland, he eventually got down on one knee, asked me to marry him, and of course I said yes. We picked a venue, Cultural Manor at the Folk Park in Hollywood, and set a date to get married, within one year, on the 10th of September, 2022. We put our heads down, got into all the planning, I went out and got the perfect dress, a classic ball gown-style wedding dress, tight bodice, puffed out at the bottom with tulle, I felt like Cinderella in it. We picked the perfect cake and most importantly found the perfect band. Waiting for the big day felt like it forever but now looking back that year flew in like the blink of an eye. One month before the wedding we decided this was a great time to move house. As if I didn't like stress enough I decided three weeks before the wedding was also a great time to get a new job. And two weeks before our wedding, my hobby to be his brother was getting married, too. Aren't those some of the most um stressful life events? No batter about it, we had to get on with it. The big day arrived. Like most brides, up at 5 a.m., hair, makeup, sorted the bridesmaids, the flower girl, the bouquets, etc. 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 It was go, go, go. We got married, it was beautiful. I cried, my my mum cried, even the groom cried we headed off into the folk park to get our pictures taken in the most beautiful of settings finally, when the pictures were over I could relax nope, it was time for the dinner then the speeches then I could relax the thing was my body hadn't relaxed in a month my body forgot how to relax straight after the dinner I thought "Mm, I don't feel quite right here Off to the bathroom I go for a wee moment to myself, chill out for a second before I go back out, mingle with the guests who had hardly even got a chance to speak to that day. Uh oh, no, I started feeling sick, then before I knew it, started getting sick. Why am I sick? wasn't pregnant, oh my god, was it the food? Is this food poisoning? What if all the guests have food poisoning? This can't be happening. I could hear the band had arrived. Everyone had finished dinner and waiting for the bride to come down for the first dance. The bride? Me? Let me tell you, it's hard getting sick with a fitted bodice and a skirt with half a metre of tulle wrapped under, under it. That dress had to come off. In the morning, it took me nearly 30 minutes and the help of three bridesmaids to get into that blooming dress. In the toilet, it took me a total of two seconds to get out of that dress on my own. The dress was thrown in the corner of the restroom while I sat and made friends with the toilet. I tried my best to time my booking to the loud sounds of the band doing their sound check so that nobody could hear me getting sick. I pulled myself off the floor, peeked out the side of the toilet door and shouted at the next guest walking past to go and get my mummy. No matter what age you are, and you're sick, you just want your mummy. My mum ran and got a tablecloth to wrap around me. There was no chance that dress was going back on me. I was brought into the bridal room to lie down on a sofa. We asked one of the waitresses for a wee bin for getting sick into. They didn't have any. Just big bins and big black bags. This was no good. I was lying down and could hardly lift my head to get sick so imagine cultural manner in the folk park there are lovely ornaments on display placed all around there was a beautiful large antique Edwardian washbowl in the foyer on display my mom spied this snuck out and grabbed it when none of the staff could see so this was no longer a beautiful large antique Edwardian washbowl This had now become my sick bowl. (laughs) I waited a while thinking the sickness would pass for long enough so I could go out and have our first dance. But it wasn't happening. Me and my diabetes just couldn't handle this much stress and this much excitement in such a short time frame and my body just said no. I had to leave the venue. Everyone kept coming up to check on me. And I just had to let the party continue. If there's one thing about this girl, she loves a boogie. But not that night. Like Cinderella, I wasn't going to make it to the end of the ball either. It was like a presidential evacuation getting me out of that venue without anybody noticing in the tablecloth. <laughs> I kissed my now-husband, goodnight, and I went home with my mommy. Aww. My husband did his first dance remembering it all now. (laughs) My husband did his first dance with our little flower girl and it broke my heart not getting our first dance. Everybody had a great night though and that was so important to me. I had asked for lots of photos. Even though I was missing out, I wanted everyone to enjoy themselves and actually, not even everybody noticed I'd left. (laughs) I was gutted I missed my first dance with my now gorgeous husband and my first dance as a missus. I was so looking forward to the band and we'd picked our perfect song which was God Bless the Broken Road by Rascal Flats. A few weeks after our wedding I got a message from the lead singer of our wedding band. They had gone to the studio recorded an acoustic version of our wedding dance and sent me a copy and said it was just for us to use Maybe someday, if we ever got the opportunity to do our first dance, they absolutely did not have to do that for us. We were blown away by their kindness, kindness that they had went out of their way to do this for us. We're so thankful that we have this recording of what would have been our first dance to keep and cherish forever. They really were the best wedding band. Fast forward one year later. The thought of not having our first dance kept playing on my mind and made me feel like our wedding was incomplete. So on Saturday, the 23rd of September, 2023, which was last Saturday, we held a party in Belfast with our nearest and dearest family and friends and eventually got our first dance using the recording from our wedding band. We can't thank them enough for our our song recording and making our wedding complete, even if it was one year later. The best wedding band in the country. You may know the lead singer, although I thought he would have been here tonight, and he's not, but he can hear it on the podcast. The famous 10 by 9 speaker, who is Mr. Paul Brady. Front man of the number one wedding band in the country, Three's a Crowd. Paul, from the bottom of my heart, and from my husband's, thank you. Just like Cinderella, I got my happy ending to my wedding. It meant the world to me.
0: Thanks so much, Mairead. I sent a recording of your story to Paul, and he was delighted. I hope you'll be back at the 10 by 9 mic soon. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll be very familiar with the big heart that is Paul Brady. And if, like Maria, you'd like to tell your story but are a little nervous or shy, or even if you're not, then get in touch at the 10x9 website, and I'll do my best to make it happen for you. Okay, let's get on to our second story. And two storytellers had dropped out of the event at short notice. These things happen. So I was about to... Well, here's how I explained it on the night. Okay, this was a slot that I would have been taking, but someone else has stepped up and... uh has evicted me, and I have to say I'm delighted. So please, big warm welcome for Bruno Magatasny. All the way from Newry.
2: My God, I feel like you're all going to hate me now. The boos when Paul said he wasn't doing his story. And I'm sitting down there going, shit, what have I done? Um, I did this at 10 by 9 in Newry, when Paul was down there second from last time, I think. He's he's a regular visit to the the Athens of the North. (laughs) The Athens of the North. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Right, music, anyway. I remember exactly where I was when I heard it. In our house, the radio was always on. In fact, several radios were always on at the same time usually resulting in a mishmash of sounds with Gay Burn coming from the kitchen, Johnny Cash coming from my daddy's shed, and Radio One on in my bedroom. And that's where I was when I heard it. Why does this song stop you in your tracks? How amazing is music that it has the power to seize you and to make you listen to it? I can't tell you what it was about this song, but I'd never heard anything like it, and I knew I needed to hear it again and again. I was 12, till that point my music was ABBA, aside from a brief dalliance with the Bay City Rulers. ABBA were my world. I studied every part of every cover of their greatest hits. Do you remember that gatefold with the couples on it? I scraped together 79P to buy the name of the game. I wanted to be Agnetha, who didn't want to be Agnetha? But by 12 we'd grown slightly apart, it happens. So I was ready for a new thing and I was ready to be obsessed and on that day I found it. Anyone who knows me knows what kind of music I'm talking about and even today at home I'm still kind of defined by my love of madness. I hope you're not disappointed, you are expecting something really deep there like Bob Dylan, I'm sorry it's madness. <laughs> I think it may be partly responsible for the musical tastes of my childhood friends because I forced everyone I knew to listen to madness. And from that day in 1979, when I first heard The Prince, my teenage life was defined by this music and this band. But teenage obsessions are powerful. They consume your entire life. It's part of the growing up process. Finding your tribe, belonging, working out your emotions, developing bonds, using them to shut out the world. It is a rite of passage, and I really went for it. Scrapbooks, posters, records, the two-tone uniform, albeit Newry style, so my Harrington jacket came from Dunn's and wasn't quite right. The haircut, my hairdresser horrified when I brought in a picture of a man for my haircut. I cannibalized smash hits to cut out every single time the word madness appeared. I learned how to do their autographs, I copied the singles covers, and I stood stock still in shops when they came on the radio. It's not like you could just find it. If you keep on the shop, that was the only place you were going to hear it. You had to just pretend you were looking really hard at whatever it was you were standing in front of. My walls were covered in posters of them, but especially Suggs, the singer. I cried when I read in smash hits that Suggs got married. (laughs) I sent him birthday cards, 13th of January. (laughs) I studied his every move on top of the pops, trying to learn the lyrics, learn the dances. A friend's family got a video recorder and, dear lover, I made her play the House of Fun video on repeat and I made everyone learn the dance. (laughs) I was a delightful sister. In 1981, I found a tiny chart diary in pennies in Dublin and, if possible, my obsession actually increased. For six years, I kept a record of the top 20, tracking the steps of every Madness record up and down the chart. I invented my own rating system, one to four stars, except for Madness, who got 40 totally healthy (laughs) and minus stars too they were reserved mostly for heavy metal and Duran Duran (laughs) on the day House of Fun got to number one I ran home from school or from home into school after lunch when I'd scribbled down the charts Tuesday June 8th 1982 (laughs) I was now in the habit of going home to listen to Gary Davis announcing the new chart on Tuesday, scribbling at a chart that run down as fast as I could so I could update my diary. Anyway, I ran into class, roaring at the top of my lungs, Madness are number one, Madness are number one! Only for Mr. Toner to say, Bruna, act your age, not your shoe size. <laughs> Classic teacher put down. In all that time, I never got to see them live. That was the dream. Well, actually the whole dream was that Suggs was gonna leave his wife, marry me, and come to live in Urie. <laughs> totally realistic. <laughs> but they only came to Belfast and in 1980 I wasn't going to that wasn't gonna happen. So I just kept on dreaming, stick up my posters buying the singles. And I didn't actually get to see Madness until 2012. I know. I know <laughs> just as I got to the age where I could go to concerts, my obsession faded, and the band broke up, and I moved on, they moved on, it just wasn't going to be. But in 2012, they came to Belfast, and I was immediately catapulted back there. And since then, every concert they've ever played in Ireland. The songs are still great, the concerts are the best fun, even if the script hasn't changed between songs in ten years. (laughs) There's less hair between me and the stage now, which is quite handy we we'll have this connection and that's it. And then in 2016, it happened. I met Suggs. Aren't you thrilled for me? <laughs> My sister and I headed to Bangor to see him do a conversational show. We decided to make a night of it and booked into the Salty Dog, as it was, and mentioned to the receptionist why we were there. Oh, he's staying here. <laughs> what? He's staying here. He's in the building. Do you want me to bring him down? (laughs) What? (laughs) My sister and I actually had to hold each other and sit down. 50-year-old women, like... (laughs) Ten minutes later, he was standing there. Hello, ladies. I believe you wanted to chat. The photos tell the whole story. Two completely dumbstruck women clinging to a poor man as if their lives depended on it. He chatted, he signed the autographs, he was lovely, and he was gone. The show was great, it was funny, he was witty, he was charming, and as we headed back to the hotel, my sister, who is braver than I am, said, we are not going to bed until he comes back in. <laughs> so, armed with coffees, we sat in the bar wait, waiting patiently. We didn't know what we were going to do, and, but then he came in, he got a drink, and he sat down. We watched him chat to everybody from a distance. And then, armed with caffeine and alcohol, my sister walked over, put her drink down and said, Do you mind if we join you? (laughs) I watched it with a mixture of awe and terror until he said, Of course, never meet your heroes. Rubbish. They will either expose themselves and lessen their hold on you or they will turn out to be everything you wanted and Suggs was the latter. Into the small hours we chatted and laughed, he bought us drinks, he did his Tommy Cooper impression, he showed us videos of his daughter's wedding, yes the wife was there, that was okay. (laughs) It's completely normal that I lifted his empty tobacco pouch and a cigarette butt, isn't it? (laughs) And even though earlier on he told the receptionist that the two of us shook like two electric eels, we didn't care. And he gave us a wee kiss goodnight, and I wondered what teenage me would have done. Passed out in a puddle probably, that's a growing up me nearly did. There's a kind of a nice after, uh, I can't think of the word. After to this. That's what, um, some years ago, I put my 1981 diary on Twitter and, uh, put out the entries of, of it every day, um, in time with, with the diary. And 1981 was obviously a lot of stuff going on, 1981, but, uh, you know, hunger strikers and all of that, but, but mostly boys and woolies, you know. Um, <laughs> A songwriter heard me talking about it on the radio on the way his way down to Limerick to team up with another songwriter to write an album. And without even knowing me, and even though we're now very good friends and live down the road from each other, Matt McGinn wrote a song called Bubblegum. It's a beautiful song about a girl growing up in the Troubles. It's about me. Needless to say, I cry every time I hear it. Daddy pinned up Bobby Sands for me right next to my madness posters. In our house, in the middle of our street. Music, eh? I should let Suggs know.
0: <laughs> Cheer madness. Thanks so much, Brona. That was brilliant. I hope Mrs Suggs never gets her hands on you. And thanks too for filling that slot. See you in Uri. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but I'd just like to say hello and thank you to some of our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks to Kevin McAteer in Cape Cod, Patty McGrath in Maryland, and Siobhan McGuigan, who I'm guessing is closer to home. Thanks to you and everyone who donates or has donated in any way. It's really appreciated. Okay, here's our third and final story in this podcast. It's possible you might have heard it before, but it's fantastic. Dave Thompson stepped in to fill one of our empty slots at short notice. He was amazing. If you're not familiar with the Orange Order, you might want to do a quick Wikipedia search before listening. Oh, and there's one small but well-used F-bomb.
3: The year is 2012. Here, I said, looking up from the the computer in the corner of the living room, the Orange Order are running a songwriting competition. (laughs) You see, you didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Nobody does. What? She said. I said, the Orange Order, they're running a songwriting competition. Right. And are you going to enter it? Well, it's not likely. They want songs about the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant in 1912, so... (laughs) It's not, it's not really my genre. <laughs> and anyway, I can't think of a rhyme for covenant. <clears throat> but I like a challenge. So over the next few days, I began to play with the question that if, you know, hypothetically, I was going to write a song about the signing of the solemn league and covenant, how would that go? And then the idea popped into my head. A few lyrics sort of... You know, came around. And I remember the moment we were in the car, we were driving to Dublin to see my sister. I was at the wheel. I couldn't write anything down. So I got Lorraine to do it. Nothing was anywhere close to complete at this stage. It's just all phrases, ideas, occasional rhymes. She's writing them down unwillingly. <laughs> Why are you being so grumpy about this? Because you'll end up winning it. <laughs> <coughs> Which is funny because that's exactly what happened. (laughs) A week after the closing date, I get this call from someone at Schomburg House informing me that I had won £200. It was delight, I was delighted. It was great to think that out of all the songwriting entries, mine had been considered the best. And I was also asked if I would play the song at the Orange Order's Covenant centenary celebration at the Ulster Hall in a few weeks' time. I hadn't expected that, although I think Lorraine had possibly seen that coming. Now, it's not that I have anything against the Orange Order, let's be clear about that, but I don't really like flag-waving that much, or marching, or the slightly strange mix of the Christian faith and nationalism. And I've always been something of a social democrat, um, In fact, I was so much of a a Social Democrat that, at that time, I'd actually been a member of the SDLP for about 12 years. It took, (coughs) took a few conversations with friends and addressing some of my own prejudices to decide that, you know, Social Democrat there was, if there's room for everybody in society, then I could, I could play at a sash-bash in all good conscience. <clears throat> the evening of the gig arrived. I walked into the tea-time sound check and stared at the largest Union Jack I have ever seen. Hung across the organ pipes behind the stage in the Ulster Hall, and I thought, well, Dave, this is a first. But despite my initial discomfort, there was the usual camaraderie between people who are about to perform in front of an audience. I shared the the jangling nerves and the free-flowing adrenaline with the other musicians and singers, narrators and poets, many of whom, like myself, did not regularly perform in front of an audience. Quickly turned out that mine was the only song that had been entered (laughs) in the competition. Although I did meet someone who said they had written their piece, quote, as a song, but it didn't have a tune. <laughs> Being well-mannered as I am, I held back from suggesting that that might reasonably just be called a poem. <laughs> the gap between sound check and the hall filling up allowed plenty of time for small talk. There was a buzz of anticipation, not just for the performance, but also for the Covenant Centenary Parade that was due to take place the following weekend. During the rehearsal, the Parades Commission made their determination on a contentious part of the parade route. I had a long conversation with the songwriter who didn't do tunes and discovered that he wasn't quite at home in his surroundings either. In the orange, he said, I've always been a bit of a maverick. I don't know why we keep using bands that get us a bad name. I don't know why we keep wanting to parade in places that don't really want us. And I spent a while talking to a student who was there to play a lamb drum and learned that there was more to it than simply blattering it really hard with your fingers until they play it. Only a few people make them for a start. And it turns out they're quite expensive. The skin has to be tightened in a certain way. It's to a certain pitch. The drum is struck in a certain manner and played to a certain rhythm. My fellow musician came from a line of lambeg drummers. His father and grandfather before him also played. And so in a way we had a a kind of similar link to being there. One of my great grandfathers, who I have little to no memory of, but I am told that I once peed out of the baby bath into his slippers, that's another thing, <laughs> but was a, a respectable local plumber, bowler, elder in the Presbyterian Church, as well as gun runner and member of a rebel army. <laughs> And the song that I had written was very much uh, an exercise in empathy to try to understand what causes someone who was fairly conservative throughout the rest of their life to take up arms in their youth and then eventually end up fighting in the British Army. Anyway, proceedings commenced, my moment arrived. Walking across the stage of the Ulster Hall to stand in a spotlight and play just me and my guitar just into that huge, velvety darkness and and space. It's an intense hit. Lots of things are going on at once. You feel the thermal current from hundreds of unseen bodies sitting in rows, watching you intently. You can hear your own voice and the open tuning of the guitar bouncing off the walls and the ceiling that fill that space. And you think fleetingly, very fleetingly, of all the other performers, musical, theatrical, political, who have stood on that stage in their time. And most of all, most of all, you're listening to that inner voice that's going, Dave, don't fuck this up. (laughs) When the final chord rang out and the wave of applause begins to roll in, every muscle in my body loosened in relief. In reflection, I was a wonder I didn't just shit myself right there and then. (laughs) Drumdurg Flute Band brought the evening to a close with a drum corps display so absolutely mesmerising it could have opened the Olympics. Final speeches were made, some thank yous, and then the national anthem, which I have not sung since my youth and did not sing that night either. Neither did one of the Scottish Pipers who was literally front and centre on stage, and I remember thinking, oh, now that's brave. (laughs) Then the house lights came back on, and I turned to survey the audience, noting in the gallery Ian and Eileen Paisley and Jim Alistair and a handful of other unionist politicians. There was no one there from the SDLP. (laughs) I said goodnight to my fellow performers. I wished them well. I exited the hall, feeling enriched by the, the little bits of their lives that they had shared with me. I stopped briefly at the merchandise stand, to buy a we-will-not-have-home-rule-fridge-magnet. <laughs> which is still proudly on our fridge, because every home should have one. I wanted to bring it tonight, and I'm gutted I forgot it, was not in my head coming out. The lambeg drummers had taken to the street outside. I, I walked back to my car to the accompaniment of the centuries-old snap and rattle of stick-on-skin, ricocheting back and forth from the Ulster Hall to the Invest NI building. I was left with a happy memory, an accomplishment of sorts, a story that I have told many times, not least at 10 by 9, and a song that, while pleasing to some, also seems to have the capacity to get under some people's skin. After one performance of it, two people, independent of each other, told me afterwards that they had almost walked out. (laughs) On another occasion, this is genuinely true, a friend, after hearing a recording of it, emailed me to say that he was concerned it might provoke someone to sectarian murder. I'd never really considered that a folk song would have the capacity to do that. And then he emailed back the next day to apologize and say that he might have overreacted. Four or five months later, I was performing again, as part of a collective of, again, this is genuinely true, Presbyterians singing the songs of Christy Moore at Clonard Monastery. (laughs) (laughs) When a new pope was announced that night, and once again there was the buzz of anticipation around the building, and as before, it was a strangely lovely moment because playing music had allowed me to be just on the edge of something that people really cared about. As I stood at the front and listened to my first chords reverberate off the high ceiling and the marble floor, my moment in the Ulster Hall came back to me briefly. I looked around and thought, Dave, you do get around. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my what a night the sash at 10x9 who would have thought it Dave thanks so much you really brought the house down and sent us home with a spring in our step brilliant and that is it for this podcast check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website which include some special events over the coming months and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can and a few people have recently. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. The fabulous Leanne, Margaret and Chris. The beautiful people of the Black Box. The fantastic and lively audience. All our amazing storytellers of course. But especially... Mareed O'Hara, Bruno McItasney, and Dave Thompson. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.